Welcome to this episode of Unbiasedly Speaking with your host, Tracy Spears. Today's guest is Bishop Rick Hollingsworth. All right, so I do want to talk about, I have so many things on my list, but one of them is that COVID experience. So you're, you're somebody that when we went through that together, it was, it was probably one of the scariest times I've ever been through. How about you? Yes. Never want to be that sick again. Yeah. So let's, so I think there are a lot of people that don't know about how bad it can be because they didn't know anybody. They're not wearing their masks now. They're not paying attention. So do you mind giving a quick kind of what happened, um, how you got it, how long, how bad it was? Hit, hit the highlights, brother. Well, I'm trying to think. Of course, it was after that fateful dinner party that eight of us attended. I um, remember thinking, I think it must have been that Monday or Tuesday that I'd heard that one of our friends had really had a headache and was not feeling well. And then I heard that another friend, and this was um, St. Patrick's Day, so I was making uh, corned beef and cabbage and taking it around to people, those who were sick, thinking uh, they all thought they had allergies. So then uh, one of them had a fever, but I didn't go into their homes. I just, we just packaged and took them corned beef and cabbage. And then the next day I started getting a terrific headache. I mean, this is a headache that is not like a sinus headache. I mean, it is an immobilizing headache. And then I began to have aches where even the joints in my fingers and toes hurt. Then I began to run a fever. And that was all in a, a couple of days that that, that progressed. And so no, a little bit of a cough, uh, nothing overwhelming. I was not short of breath. I just had a, a cough. That's when I called my physician, started hearing about a test and that probably wouldn't be able to get a test, but I happened to call my primary care physician and she said, we will meet you out in the parking lot. We will do a flu test first. And of course, uh, my spouse um, was also in the car with me. We weren't wearing masks or, or anything. And we just assumed that probably it, it could be the flu or it was, it was just allergy since it was early spring. And of course, they came out in full hazmat, um, <laughs> <laughs> full hazmat um, uh, garb. And so they tested me for the flu. It takes 15 minutes. They went back into the office and came out and said, that's negative. Now we do have the COVID-19 test and we're going to test you for that. Well, when they brought out that swab, I mean, that swab was about- with your leg. <laughs> now I want you to relax. Of course, that this is all going on outside the car window, you know, in the back of a parking lot, in the parking lot. She stuck that, <laughs> she stuck that swab clear down to my tonsils. I thanked her for free septoplasty, thanked her for a free, I had a deviated septum no longer, and told her that she actually was my favorite nurse before that time. <laughs> but she couldn't have been more compassionate or more kind. And I was just surprised that they even said, come test. Now, at that time, they did test my spouse because they couldn't, according to the, the guidelines at that time, because he wasn't exhibiting any symptoms. In reality, of course, those of us who have been through this 
he probably should have been tested at that point, but they were worried about not having enough exams, and I understand that. She said, this will take three days to get back, and we will let you know. Came back, once again, not when you wash hands, and of course I wash my hands all the time anyway, wash our hands, those type things, but we really didn't change any sleeping arrangements or things like that. And Monday morning they called and said, you're positive. This whole time I was still running a fever, not a high fever, not 104 or anything like that. It, it went anywhere from about 99.8 up to about 103.5, 103.6, somewhere, somewhere in there. With that in bed, of course, still achy, those type things. And the one thing that I did point out is, is I'd had a little GI upset also before that. And that is when John and I separated bedrooms, totally started disinfecting everything, started doing everything that we could and, and began the isolation process. With that, my fever continued for two and a half weeks and it just physically drained you. I really had no appetite. I did lose my sense of taste and smell for a short period of time. Some people I, I understand have experienced it much longer. I did not. Mine did come back towards the end of, of my symptoms. I also began to be a little more short of breath. And once again, we were, <laughs> all of us were on the, on the internet, you know, your safest place to find out your healthcare uh, information. And not only was I speaking to my primary physician, but also John's primary physician, and everybody offering suggestions about what you should do. And I, I was very, very fearful. And, and as you're aware, once we found out about you, we, of course, were exchanging uh, symptoms with each other to see, you know, what was going on. And then as we learned that as the disease progresses, the increase in shortness of breath, you need to know your oxygen level. And we had a friend that was kind enough to get us pulse oxes prior to them selling out. And that was a godsend that we could test that and check that because that helped decrease some of the anxiety because I think the anxiety was almost as bad as the symptoms of the disease because we kept hearing on day 19, you know, it can take a turn. Well, we live an hour outside Tulsa um, and I had spoken with my physician who's, who's local and she said, really, if your oxygen level drops to such, you need to go to Tulsa. I don't think they can handle it in our local community. Well, <laughs> figure that out an hour, <laughs> hour outside of, of uh, Tulsa. So there was that level of anxiety, but I was checking my pulse ox <laughs> and my temperature probably every, at least every four hours. Then hearing stories where people, their spouse came in, you know, where they were fine. They set up, I set up and ate dinner, actually got up out of bed and ate dinner one evening. We thought, well, this is getting better. Well, then I read a story about the person who did that and his wife came in the next day and he'd crossed over. And so that really made me anxious with that. So um, uh, John checked on me like three times in the night to make sure that I was, I was still breathing. But did so- Did you think you were going to die? Yes. Matter of fact, I even called um, the choir master from our church and asked him to actually pull a certain funeral service that we had done for a dear friend several years ago because I thought it was a pretty good funeral. So 
you know, I did get my last confession, though. I did not, I did not have holy unction. Um, of course, I know it's pretty bad when my John, who is not, let's just say he's not over, overly demonstrative. I can see the anxiety in his eyes, and he was very sweet. <laughs> He was, he, was, he was a great nurse. He, he was flat worried. Yeah, yeah, he was. Yeah. He, he was. Once again, the fever still continued. They had told us I was the I was had the privilege of being the first case um, in the county that we live in. So I was ground zero in in the little county that well, it's a large county actually that we live in here in Oklahoma. And so immediately the health department calls us. We live in a, a, a community here that's kind of a small community. Driving by the cabin, you know, trying to look at golf carts would just kind of slow down, you know. And <laughs> well, they were speeding up going by our cabin. They didn't want to catch it. So, you know, <laughs> there wasn't anybody going slowly past our house. That's right. So they informed me that John needed to begin, since he was asymptomatic, once again, couldn't get a test for him. What That was the most maddening part for me is watching all of these people that really wanted to be proactive. They wanted to be tested. Um, as you've mentioned, there were eight of us at a party. And, and I'm, uh, I believe all eight of us probably had it. At, I mean, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. We don't, two or three of them haven't had the antibody test yet. But the idea that people just couldn't go get a test, has, we have to look back on that on the postmortem and say, that had to be right. the, the most, well, that couldn't be the most failure because it took two months to even start acting from a government standpoint. But that's got to be one of the big disappointing things and one of the big learns that we have, right? Right. It, it doesn't make sense when you look at epidemiology of not testing a group of people that know that they've been exposed at that time just because they don't have a symptom. So it was very, very confusing. And now, since he has now had, and of course, I can't, I, I can't get an antibody test. I guess I could maybe by now, but my doctor said, we know you had it, so there's no reason for us to test you for antibodies. So there's really no reason to do that. However, John did, was tested, my spouse was tested, and he does not have the antibodies. That's just, right. It's just unbelievable because of, if you take the more than 10 minutes, you know, less than six feet with the exposure that he had but that's the best that we could do but it would be it would be better to have that information going in and they probably should have just tested us right then all of us you know who had been exposed but he had to remain in isolation for two weeks after i was asymptomatic so he had to remain in a quarantine state for a long time just because of having to stay isolated two more weeks so it was a long, long process even afterwards. But I lost 10 pounds in the midst of it. I just, I wasn't hungry. And like I said, I just never want to go through something like that again with the fear, the fear of the unknown and then the symptoms that went along with it. Well, let me ask you something. One of the things that I've been most outraged about this, um, having gone through it and getting to the other side of it, and then there's this, you know, idea that, we perhaps, because we had COVID, you and I, and people that, that tested positive, 
that we could help other people that were, uh, you know, people that are dying from this. I mean, you know, some people were asymptomatic to your point. Then some of us were, I was in the same boat with you. I did not think I was going to live through it. And so I remember that, you know, oh my gosh, the plasma, it can help. And when that was first starting to come out and I couldn't wait and, you know, to, to start to donate. And then I had to wait my two weeks until the last symptom, get the negative test. I remember saying to you, we had this conversation about, you know, I'm going to go donate plasma. And you were like, yes, me too. And so I, in my mind, we were all going to be sitting in this room donating plasma together, saving all these lives. And what I was, I'm so outraged by is that you were not allowed to donate plasma. So what happened that they turned you down? And, and tell me more about that. Well, I had known, you know, since what, 1985 till um, 2015, if you were a gay man and, and had had sex with a man, you were automatically deferred. So I had known for years that I could not donate blood, which is a travesty in itself. But that was from 1985 till mm, 2015, I believe. I guess it's a little more poignant for me because I had a brother who died of AIDS in 1989. And so I also am a nurse and a retired uh, uh, nursing professor. And at that point in time, I started doing a lot of teaching and seminars on safe sex, protecting oneself. And as, as we began to have the antivirals and those type of things, a lot of teaching with families that did a dissertation on levels of anxiety in family members of uh, loved ones who had um, HIV. And so I was very well aware of safe sex protection and, and those type of things through the years. And um, so I knew, uh, but I had heard that the Red Cross had changed some of their guidelines. And I thought, wow, if this can help, then let's, let's do it. And I had heard that, that you were going to go and that St. John's, there was a, a research group that was looking at the, the plasma uh, donation. And um, so I called and actually talked to an old colleague uh, on the phone there who signed up. You had to have a, you had to have had a positive test and then they would test you for the negative test. So went by, once again, the 12 inch, <laughs> the 12 inch septoplasty <laughs> um, swab. Um, and this one was not as gentle as the last one, um, but- That woman should be uh, arrested. That's all I'm saying, because I had, <laughs> I had my second or fourth, third test by that woman. And I, I became rageful. I mean, I looked at her and I said, you're yeah. not doing it right. And she looked at me like, you just need to shut up. <laughs> right. I was, Excuse me. Hello. <laughs> and, and so it, it came back negative. And when I received that, then they automatically put my name in with the Red Cross to say he is, he is safe to, to donate blood. So I was really excited about that. I really didn't know what, what their guidelines were, but I certainly wanted to talk to them about it. Sure enough, then I received a call, this gentleman, and, and let me say this, I talked to four different people through this. Each and every one of them could not have been more professional. So they, they were not unkind at all. I could tell the frustration in, in their minds also. So um, the gentleman called to do a, a referral with me to tell me that you'll need to go to Tulsa 
he went through the thing and said, well, now this is where you will go. And I said, well, I need to let you know that I'm gay and I've been in a monogamous relationship for 33 and a half years. Silence. And so he said, well, that's an issue. Oh. And, and so I kind of said, I understand what unprotected sex is and, and uh, those things, but I understand the guidelines have changed. And so he said, I need to, and I explained to him, you know, by the time you explain, I understand what unprotected sex is. I understand about exchange of bodily fluids. I understand all those things. And I'm telling you that none of that has happened. And so he said, I need to let you talk, speak to my supervisor. Supervisor got on the phone. I went through the whole story again. And I said, I'm, I'm confused as to what has been relaxed <clears throat> in the guidelines. And she said, um, yes. She said, actually, our, our questionnaires that we utilize have not been approved by the FDA yet. And so a lot of the computer systems in certain areas have not been updated. And so what, um, what she said when, was that I need to let you speak to my supervisor. So I'm on the third person saying the type of sexual encounters that we have. And the third person said, in reality, the FDA is coming out with a statement in April. Now I was tested on, what was it? Uh, April, April 21st, I think, was when I received my negative test from the hospital. They had not updated um, the guidelines, and the FDA did say male-to-male, male-to-male sexual contact within the last three months automatically defers you. And there's a lot of other things that go in there with tattoos and uh, uh, sex, sex workers and, and those type things. But once again, I went through saying, I understand this, but I'm telling you, I have not been exposed to any of those things in you know, X number of years and, and that type of stuff. Well, I need to let you speak to my supervisor. Oh, so by, by the fourth time, I was just really starting to try to understand this process of, of where and that it was discriminatory and it continues to stigmatize not only those in our community with HIV, but also LGBTQ people. You know, just one more thing that you may not be able to, to do. And that just began to irritate me by the end. Of, I thought, here I am trying to help. I'm, I'm safe to donate this. I know that internationally. We know that they've been watching the blood supply. You, you do go through all of the questions on that. And I was just really frustrated. And she said, well, we worked real hard on changing guidelines. And I wanted to be very respectful to her. And I said, well, that's not enough. That's just right. not enough. Right. This is, you know, discriminatory. I'm just, I'm very disappointed in this because I would love to be able to help save someone's life if I can. Listen, And to that me. was pretty much the conversation. Are you, so this is the part I, I did not know that until 2015, a gay man could not even donate blood. Is that what you're yeah. saying? That's correct. Okay, so correct. I'm outraged about that. And now when you say, let's add the other layer to it, that you're, you've been in a monogamous mm -hmm. relationship for 33 and a half years. Don't forget that half, because. <laughs> Don't forget that half, because we may be 34, yes. <laughs> and so, uh, 
I don't know. I did an interview, as you know, and I was answering all these questions. And when I got to that part, it made me emotional because the thought that you, that we're still in that time that, that people are fearful of that. I mean, does it, for you, is it just no big deal because you're used to it or are you outraged? How do you feel about it? It's not supported by scientific data. And I think that bothers me along with another stigma. Being a gay man, there must be something we're doing that's dirty, you yeah. know, or, or, and I think it's that part that, that bothers me. It's, it's just a stigma. Till 2015, if you were a gay man, you couldn't do that. And I'm sure the questionnaire, since I never experienced it because I knew I wasn't allowed to donate blood, would say, have you ever had sex with a man? If you, and if you answered that question, so instead of it being on an individual basis, like, have you had sex with a person who uses IV drugs? Have you ever had sex with a person who's HIV? Or had, when was your last HIV test or something like that? It should be just considered on an individual basis. And I understand uh, wanting to have qualifications for donating blood. That doesn't bother me. As a nurse, that, that doesn't bother me. But I think it's just the thing of, if you were a heterosexual and could go in, they can donate blood. And I can't because I'm honest about who I am. Right. I, it just it just became very very frustrating for me, and I understand that the Red Cross is frustrated with it. So well, let me go, let me go back. I have a question. So you are a bishop, right? right. You're, you're you're the the clergy. That's retired. <laughs> retired. Retired bishop, and so right. and you had a church here in Tulsa for a very long time, St. Jerome's, but. You were raised as a Baptist, is that correct? Free will Baptist. Uh -huh. free will Baptist. So how does so how does a guy who's raised free will Baptist what tell me just about that transition? You realize you're gay, and now your your brother, also two siblings out of the family. How did that time? It feels like you're back in that same timeline with this American Red Cross to me, right? It feels like you're back to that same feeling because it had to be hard for you first of all to come out yes right yes did, mm -hmm. who's, who did you come out to by the way when did you realize it and what was that process because you had you had to leave the church yes that's correct and in smaller denominations i went to a, a denominationally supported college uh with my cousins and it was a small college that really had been my life i mean in, in smaller and probably not unlike others, but it was just my experience that it was small. And so you knew everybody in the denomination just about, and certainly statewide. And so, when, and then also when you go to a uh, religious college, right, first degrees from a religious college, then you, um, you certainly, if you ever had any thoughts about that or begin to question that, and then I had my brother, who's three years, who's, who's three years older than, than I am, had some difficulty coming out and attempted to harm himself several times in, in his transition of coming out. And watching my parents' reaction to that, it's one of those things that you kind of want to avoid that conversation if you can. And then you put the religious dissonance with that of, I will go, I, I will probably go to hell, you know, if this is, if this is true and those type things, you know, don't do that or ask forgiveness or I was taught that it was a sin. It was an abomination. Then when I watched my brother struggle with that, I thought, wow, that's, that's not going to happen. And eventually he moved away from Tulsa 
which, you know, you have to think back in that time, a lot of people wanted to move away from, from Tulsa. Tulsa's a beautiful city and it's a fabulous city, but a lot of people would go to Dallas or they'd go to New York City. And my brother got out of town as soon as, basically as soon as he could. I was engaged to a female. We were going to evangelize the world. She was a beautiful, beautiful young lady. And I did care for her as a, as a person, but I began to identify. And so when I graduated from college um, and I began to question God and say, well, if this is so wrong, then let this happen in a service. Well, of course that didn't happen because God loves all of us. And that's not a punishment. We call that throwing a fleece out before God. And so I began to question it. And then I had never been, <laughs> I had never been in a bar in my life. Next door neighbor, actually, is a church organist, which is hilarious. He invited me, so this bar's different. Well, I don't, I don't really go to bars. Well, it was different. It sure <laughs> was different because it happened to be a gay bar. And back in those days, you know, gay people had to go in the back doors. You never gave anyone your last name. It was, you know, kind of a secret side because you still had in Tulsa, you still have police raiding the bars, you know, loading you up in a paddy wagon, you know, all that kind of stuff. So you could lose your career, you know, because of that. And so, yes, he was right. It was different. And um, I certainly understood it at that point. So continue. Was he gay? To, the church organist was gay? Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. No, it wasn't, he wanted, didn't go to the church I went to. We became friends because I knew he was acting in his church. And okay. so that was kind of it from that point on. So then I had to tell, really officially come out. Wait a minute. My, Wait a minute. You go into a bar one time. It's all it took. Really? Yeah. And you, that was, no. you were like. <laughs> I knew, I kind of, <laughs> I knew before then I was struggling with it, you know, okay. before then. Yeah. But I thought, you know, this, I just can't continue to do this. I can't continue to being in a, 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 a church that says this is a sin and representing that church in the pulpit, those type things, I couldn't do that. And I was tired of it at that point in time. And so I had come from a family of ministers. And so I had to let them know, which was very disappointing. And that church doesn't shun people in any way. They have lovely people in that church. But I just elected to uh, pull away from that. Now, my my mother's concern, my parents' concern at that time, obviously, was for my health and also violence at that time. I mean, you know, parents who love their kids are worried about their kid being assaulted, those type things, not having a successful career. So this is many, many years ago. And so you, you have to be careful. Anyway, that was their concern. And I basically had to find a job because I did not have a job really because it was, I was doing some preaching and those type things. Someone said, well, they need some help at the hospital. And I had been in some groups where we worked with different organizations in high school and we all were interested in service. And so I thought, well, I can, I can work in the hospital and do something. So they trained me as an orderly, we called them back then, and kind of fell in love with healthcare at that time and decided I wanted to go to nursing school. And that was hilarious because not only did their son <laughs> come out as a, as a gay man, but I also decided as a male, I wanted to be a nurse. And I was the only male in my nursing class. So my poor parents, they really tried to be supportive, but I was really throwing a lot of curveballs at them because nursing wasn't something that a lot of men went into back then. And so I basically left the church for quite a few years. 
and I still always wanted God in my life. I still had a spiritual need for God to be in my life. I just could not find the right place for that and could not square it with who I was as a gay man. I did and eventually find a church and fell in love with the liturgy and fell in love with it and started studying and those type things. That church, which was the Episcopal Church, which I love and have a great deal of respect for, attended there, worked all sorts of committees, sang in the choir, those type things. I started because remember now I was probably, um, I was still doing a lot of speaking on HIV AIDS at that time my brother had died and I was, I was doing a lot of that. And as I was going and doing these presentations, these seminars, and I just really felt the call that I needed to do something regarding my religious life that was a little deeper. So I began to discern that and began to have some people in, in the church who happened to be deacons and, and different things begin to discern and pray with me about that. So I began to explore a moving towards ordination in the Episcopal Church. And at that time, uh, basically after a year of talking to different people, different clergy, they said, don't do it because it was not accepted at that time. The Episcopal Church has since changed, even though there's some, probably some dioceses or parishes that still wouldn't be comfortable for a gay or a lesbian person. But at that time, it was a big no. There was no, don't, don't do it. Now, Bishop Spong, Shelby Spong, who has, has written extensively, was ordaining some gay people, but you had to be in that diocese, and he was only accepting certain people because of the numbers of, of that type of thing. And so it was a, just a real confusing time for me because I was heartbroken. The church that I'd found that had nurtured me, taught me about the sacraments, basically said, it, it's just not going to work in our church. And that was real disappointing to me. But I knew that if I felt that way, there had to be other people that were what we would call sacramental or liturgical in their approach to worship had to feel the same way, whether they were Lutherans, Roman Catholics, Episcopalians. We could have five of the sacraments in the church, and there were beautiful people in the church, but we could not marry, and we could not be ordained openly as, as we were. And, and to me, if you're going to make a vow at the altar, attempt to be honest about the vow that you're making at the altar. And so I became real frustrated for that. And I started looking for an avenue to express uh, what I believe God wanted me to do. So we began to look at different communities. And uh, we found a community in Oklahoma City that was an independent Catholic community. And a group of us went and we began the formation of and uh, went back to school. Um, we started a parish in Tulsa, Oklahoma, which was open affirming with all seven sacraments for LGBTQ people, anyone really. So the rest is really kind of history with that 28 years later. Well, you started that church and grew it uh, to, to, I mean, how many members did you have before you? Uh... Well, I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. In the, you know, I don't know, hundreds something. I mean, it wasn't, you know, we, we do it by families. We always laugh. When someone does the attendance, I counted the dogs and the cats walking by the church. 
Listen, that's, I want people to know in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a couple hundred people, you know, on Sunday morning that support the LGBTQ community are holed up in, you know, in a church. I think that's pretty cool. There were churches at that time. We had a Unitarian church, which is, is a wonderful church. They had been accepted for a long time. Mm-hmm. We had a MCC church, Metropolitan Community Church, but we did not have a church that looked at the sacraments the way we do, all seven sacraments. And so that was extremely important to me. And the liturgy itself was extremely important to me. And the Eucharist was extremely important. And we did not have that option in Tulsa. And so that's what was important, though obviously it was important to a lot of other people. That's 30 years ago. Times are changing, praise God. And I know the Episcopal Church is taking a different stance than the Evangelical Lutheran Church is taking a different stance. Roman Catholics not. There's still a need for people who are displaced, uh, you know, or we had people who had gay children who wanted to be in a denomination that say, I love your children too. And we had gay couples with children who wanted to be in an environment where it was okay to be who they were. It was a unique situation back then. Of course, there was a film that was made on our church called Unlikely Family, which is available on Amazon. And that's called Unlikely Family, and that's a the mm-hmm. documentary that you're discussing, so everybody definitely mm-hmm. check that out. Now, can you believe that in our lifetime, gay marriage finally passed? Like, no. I know. When totally shocked. It was, I was not paying attention. I mean, that day, that particular day, I did not know that that was going to happen that day. Did you, do, when, when all that happened, were you riveted by the TV and, and, and the news waiting or? I was just shocked, you yeah. know, now here we had been performing sacramental marriages all along in the church. And, and uh, my partner and I, or my spouse and I, had had a sacramental marriage. And that's what we always counted as our wedding. We, you know, even though legally it wasn't recognized, and it, 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 to me, it was a sacrament in the church, and we had had that. And I was just, so, so we did not jump out and do it right away, um, because we really didn't see the need. And then we began to see the financial challenges that can and I don't think people realize that a lot of gay couples because of not being able to be married there's a whole there's a whole slew of attorneys that have made a really good living because gay people are trying to protect their partners through trusts and all the different things it's interesting because you still have to be careful and I think what has happened here most recently with George Floyd there's still places that and I can only speak from a gay man's experience, you don't go, you know, you do not show outward affection. You do, you, you do not do that. You can still uh, have violence uh, directed towards you, whether it's uh, verbal abuse, whether it's physical abuse. I'm sorry, folks, that's still real. And you do have to be careful. And so that brings up all of that stuff when I see that, and it just breaks my heart that we're still there. I cannot even begin to experience what a black or brown person experiences because I'm not with my skin color, but I can experience being fearful for my life. And I can experience a fear of calling a police officer, even though I think there are some wonderful police officers. There's, there's still that fear and it's still not accepted. For example, when I was speaking to a person from the physician's office and they said, well, now, because um, they were following up after an ER visit that I had. Now, how did you get there? And I said, my spouse did. Well, is, was she, you know, has she, did she get sick? And I said, he. And I, I have begun to correct that language 
they were very wonderful after that point in time. There was no discrimination whatsoever. But you have to correct people because they automatically assume. And most people, I would say most of the time it's accepted pretty well, but there are other times that you just hesitate before you just open yourself up to it. You do. I mean, it's just it's just inherent that yeah. you that you just think about it. Or when you're in a place you sometimes it takes a lot of energy to change the conversation with someone. You don't say my husband or my spouse, he, you say, you may keep it more general, like, well, we went and, and we did those type things. And that's a shame because they don't know part of my life that's very important to me. So professionally, you don't, you don't always do that still. You know, I've had this uh, conversation with Suzanne Westenhopper, as you can imagine, about how I feel like I let our, uh, the LGBTQ community down because I was not braver when I was younger. So because I didn't want the stigma, I didn't want, you know, I, I think unlike black people, I could pretend that that wasn't happening. And mm -hmm. as I now am digging in as you are, and we're learning more about white privilege and, and all the things I, and I always thought, oh yeah, I'm different. I get, it. no, no, no. I have, I still have a choice. I can still pretend. I mean, I can't now because you obviously you've met me and if you see me, you know differently, but you know, but I, you, you know, like a black person can't not be black. And I don't know I, with what's happened with George Floyd. I get that now at a level that is so much deeper. Um, and yeah. I, and we're going to have a lot, we're going to continue to have a lot, of, a lot of conversations like that. But back to the Suzanne Westenhofer, I spent a lot of my life tr not being gay, right? Like not, you know, not answering that question to your point, right. saying we, and you know, th this is what we did, but not giving details. But you are probably one of the nicest people I've ever met. And I saw you one night get super heated, red faced. And I was cheering you on because it happened to be with my then girlfriend, now wife, who had this amazingly easy coming out, right? So she's been married to a man for 27 years, uh, ends up, you know, we end up being together. And she says to you, um, well, gosh, Rick, I don't know why you and John aren't just holding hands in public and why you're not just, you know, uh, why, why you're actually even scared of it. And, you know, I thought, uh-oh, and I mean, you gave her, <laughs> you gave her one of the greatest history lessons that, uh, of what it's like to be a gay man that's in the Baptist church and all the coming out and, you know, listen, in your parting shot, you remember the last thing you said, because it's what I, go ahead, you remember what it was? I, I, I don't, I just remember, I, of course, I adore Rose, so. Here's what you said. You said, listen, honey, the reason you can hold Tracy's hand walking down that street is because of the 30, 40 years of discrimination I have faced. So you should thank me. Or <laughs> well, that was one of my finer moments, I guess. But <laughs> what was, no, what was so great about it is that, of course, I'm being funny. You delivered it in such a way where she, afterwards, she said, oh my gosh, I've never experienced that kind of pain, what she got from you in that, you know, hour, hour and a half conversation. Um, and I do think that's what we're getting now from people around the George Floyd, is we're now experiencing the pain of it, not the story of it, but the pain of it.
not, and I'm not that's comparing right. it because there's no comparison. Like, there's, there's not. That's right. I wouldn't even begin to, to do that. I wouldn't even begin to offer that except that to understand, I understand fear and I under, I understand prejudice in certain areas. I'm, I'm learning to understand what their experience is, but yeah, you're, you're right. I can, can go into a restaurant without being told no, or no one's watching me when I'm shopping, but I'm telling you, it does elicit those and my heart just breaks when I, when I see that. And it just continues to expand equality and lack of equality in our society. It just, it just expands that for me when you hear the stories uh, and see what actually happens. There have been some interesting articles lately on the Stonewall riot happened because of police abuse. The Stonewall riots happened because the police were coming in abusing the gay patrons and they had had enough mm. of it. So they did have some violence and they did bust windows and they did do that and they'd had enough. Well, that's the LGBTQ history. That was why we're celebrating Pride Month and because of the history of the Stonewall riots. So people do get enough. That's enough. That's probably what I relate, even though that night I <laughs> can't believe I gave Rose a lecture on it. But I think eventually you have to say, no, that's just not quite how it is. And I think that's what we're seeing now. No, folks, this is enough. It's enough. I think there's a lot of people that don't know about the Stonewall riots, right? I, I think there's, you know, a lot of that. And what's good and bad or whatever, but is that there's a generation of people, Rick, that are so much younger than we are that it doesn't even hit their radar. You know, right. like, I love watching young parents go, oh, I think she, I think she's identifying as a he now. And, you know, we're going to start calling him, you know, Jackson, you know, like, like, you know, I've been in those conversations and I'm like, that is so amazingly cool that people yes. are, are, you know, changing their minds uh, about that and who we are. So, well, what, let me ask you this. What, so you're, you're retired now. You retired um, a year ago officially. And so what are you curious about right now? Curious? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm enjoying gardening right at this point in time. I'm enjoying reading and, and gardening and traveling more than, than I have in the past and experiencing that. And, but it's still one of those things where there's, there's probably still something else for me to do out there. It's just um, being, being quiet and still for a while and enjoying some things that you're cooking. I love to cook. And so I'm, I, you know, uh, of course, I guess everybody else with COVID-19, I've got my sourdough starter making bread. <laughs> and, and, but I was doing that before the COVID because I enjoy baking. I think just really trying to find out without these things in your life, who are you really? And what's really important? Retirement's an interesting thing in that I'm so busy with the church and also my secular career as a nursing professor. When you pull back from that, you really begin to do some introspection. And I guess I'm still there a year later saying, wow, and there are parts of it that I like. And I can't say I've been real bored, but I can just say that I was so used for so many years of being so active in so many areas that it's, it's just interesting. I'm still exploring that. And my spouse works still. He's uh, younger than I am. And so he still has his career and doing that. So it's not like we can just go off on a yacht for three months at a time. So Ooh, that sounds fun though. It sure does. Yes. <laughs> 
Instead, you're going to go in an RV. <laughs> oh, can you believe it? <laughs> no, I can't. You were pretty funny about it, though. So, uh, so this will be the first time you've actually stayed in an RV. Is that true? Except for that little time that we stayed with you. Oh, right. Uh, you know, that I kept hitting my head up on the uh, ceiling. Yeah. Um, except for the concussion, it was great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, we, so just to let everybody know, we rented an RV and we, you and John stayed with me and Rose uh, in this RV for, I don't know, two or three nights when we went to Colorado. Um, and, and you, at, after that, we bought an RV and you were like, never again. <laughs> so, so you you and John follow everybody in their RVs all over the country. So this this summer uh, we're gonna go to Colorado and Santa Fe. And you've actually rented one, but you've you've got a pretty cool deal. You rented one that yeah, it's gonna be set up at the campsite. They call it glamping. Yes, and, uh, <laughs> but you don't even have to haul it. You don't even have no, to drive no. it. No, no, no. You just show up and enjoy yourself. You know, make you a cocktail and enjoy yourself. Yes, that's uh, right. Well, listen. <laughs> After I heard that you all were doing that, Rose and I are like, we're selling ours. <laughs> we're going to just start <laughs> renting them when we get there because we're pulling it, you know, a thousand miles. Uh, that's, not, that's not the most part of the fun or, uh, of RVing, as you know. <laughs> Listen, you're one of my all-time favorite people. I love you. I, I mean, I love you, too. you are my family, and um, I'm glad we didn't die. But <laughs> yes, me too. Me I, too, yeah. It wasn't a race to see, you know, who could be the sickest, but you and I happened to be out of that group. We happened to have, for whatever reason, had the most severe symptoms uh, in it. And I'm just thankful we're, we're here. And, and once again, even that experience makes you really, you know, kind of um, do some introspection about what's, what's really important. And it really is about relationships. It's really about relationships and love and acceptance and enjoying what you you should be doing. I mean, it does make you enjoy that part of life a lot more. I will say that was my, that was for me, as you now, as you know now, I mean, we've been to the cabin more, connecting more, like it was a huge wake up call. You know, my life has been spent predominantly on a plane for the past several years. And I've missed a lot of those those things that are important, but you know, I'm with you going through that, looking at that from, oh, wow, it, am I where I really want to be? Is this, is this how I want my time to go? Just having that reset. I, don't, don't you think that's a side effect, even if people did not get COVID, but people being home, don't you, don't you hope that that's going to be the great lesson from this is that people got grounded, people reconnected yes. with their family? Yes, yes, yes. yes. And once again, being so busy with our careers and everything, we reconnected in a way, as, as scary as it was at times, we really had a good time. And we, we kind of reinitiated some of that. This, we really do enjoy each other's company. We did separate things in, in the midst of that, but it really is a beautiful experience. It, it, was, it was good. It was okay to have to plan your meals. And I, I missed hugging because I'm a big hugger, I, you know, there are things that I've missed. It's, I, I, hope, I hope that that has grounded people a lot in their, in their relationships. It sure happened here. Well, listen, I can't wait to hug you again as well. And uh, thank you. I know you were the reluctant podcast guest. <laughs> well, 
course. Well, I'm actually fairly shy and I'm a little bit introverted unless I happen to know you and then I will talk your leg off and act real silly and most of the time I'm fairly reserved and so yes this is not something because I who knows I may get my facts wrong or, or something like that I would never you know want to say something that wasn't true and, and then also just talking about one's journey in a podcast is is a little interesting you know about the pain that came along with the church and stuff. It's not something you want to necessarily, I would rather talk about the great things that are happening now in the church and the, and how many churches now are moving to acceptance. I mean, I would rather talk about the positive part of that than the pain of going through that. But that's my journey. And it turned out to be a positive, wonderful, and there's a home now for, for people to worship God. And, and the same way with my nursing career. Now look at the number of men going into nursing. And that's, a, that's just a wonderful thing that we take gender out of that profession. So, you know, I've seen a, seen a lot of changes in my life and that's, that's a positive thing. And I'd rather talk about how wonderful that is. I'm gonna have you back to talk about your uh, renting your RV trip. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, we, we will see. I'm a little concerned about, um, you know, as a gay man, I have to do my hair. And I'm a little concerned about the water consumption. We don't have water, we have electricity. So um, I'm, a, I'm a little concerned about that. You're gonna, yeah, yeah. I, know, I know back in the back of that uh, medicine cabinet, you've got dippity-doo or something, I know it. Something, something's gonna have to happen. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not real sure yet, but I'll figure it out. I may have to drive to Crested Butte to get some dry shampoo or something, but we'll figure it out. <laughs> Uh, that's funny. All right, brother. I love okay. it. We'll do love it again soon. Okay. See you later. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Subscribe and join us next week.